Hello, I'm James Saunders. And I'm Jessica Powers. This week, we are walking the line between criminal and civil proceedings, taking a look at the issues which arise when criminal and civil law collide. We should make clear at the outset that neither James nor I are criminal practitioners, and neither of us have ever practised in criminal law. However, we are increasingly encountering issues in chancery cases which arise as a consequence of criminal proceedings against a party, particularly those involving civil fraud and insolvency. In the last couple of years alone, I've been involved with a High Court claim where a co-defendant was charged in respect of the allegations of fraudulent misrepresentation pleaded in the civil claim, and two bankruptcy cases where proceeds of Crime Act restraint orders have loomed large. The closest many civil practitioners get to criminal proceedings are committal applications for contempt of court. Part 81 of the Civil Procedure Rules, which applies in relation to contempt of court proceedings, was recently simplified by the introduction of Part 81N. Given that the changes only took effect from the 1st of October 2020, now seems like a good time to remind ourselves of the current procedure. The first question which usually arises where there are concurrent criminal and civil proceedings is whether the civil proceedings should be stayed until the conclusion of the criminal proceedings. The power of the court to stay proceedings is provided for in CPR Rule 3.12F. That rule states that the court may stay the whole or part of any proceedings or judgment, either generally or until a specified date or event. The glossary to the White Book explains that a stay imposes a halt on proceedings apart from taking any steps allowed by the rules or the terms of the stay. A stay not only halts the proceedings, but also any time limit which has not yet expired. It places the proceedings in stasis and therefore differs in that respect from an adjournment. The procedure where a stay is sought because of related criminal proceedings is found in the Practice Direction to Part 23, Practice Direction 23A, at paragraph 11A. Any party to the civil proceedings or the prosecutor or any defendant in the criminal proceedings may apply to stay the civil proceedings. All of the parties to the civil proceedings must be made a respondent to the application, but it is not necessary for the prosecutor or the defendant in the criminal proceedings to be joined as a party to the civil proceedings in order for them to make the application. The evidence in support of the application must both contain an estimate of the expected duration of the stay and identify the respects in which the continuance of the civil proceedings may prejudice the criminal trial. In the vast majority of cases, the defendant to a criminal trial will likely want to stay related civil proceedings. However, the case law shows that achieving a stay is far from straightforward. The Upper Tribunal in Bitar and the FCA observe that there is a strong presumption against a stay. In the Crown and Panel on Takeovers and Mergers ex part fired, the Court of Appeal stated that it is a power which has to be exercised with great care and only where there is a real risk of serious prejudice which may lead to injustice. The Privy Council confirmed in Panton and Financial Institution Services Limited that what has to be shown is the causing of unjust prejudice by the continuation of the civil proceedings and that the burden falls on the defendant to the claim to show why the claimant's right to have its claim determined should be delayed. So, what might amount to serious prejudice for these purposes? In First Jefferson Limited and Betcher, Lord Justice McGaw indicated that a relevant factor might be if the civil proceedings would give rise to publicity, which might influence people who might be jurors in the criminal proceedings. Another example given was if there was some real danger that disclosure of the defence in the civil action would or might lead to a potential miscarriage of justice in the criminal proceedings by, for example, enabling a prosecution witness to prepare fabricated evidence. 
On a similar theme, Mr. Justice Millett accepted in Bree DPR Futures Limited that given the likelihood of widespread media coverage, there would be a real risk to the director's right to a fair trial if the civil claims by the liquidators were heard before criminal proceedings, particularly if they were heard shortly beforehand. Although even in that case, he did not order a stay. In Attorney General of Zambia and Mia Karen Desai, the Court of Appeal acknowledged that a stay may be appropriate where, as in that case, the claimant in the civil proceedings is, or is in effect, also the prosecutor in the criminal proceedings. One can imagine that that principle might also extend to a case where the claimant in the civil proceedings is a state-owned company. The main concern identified by the directors in DPR Futures was that filing affidavits in the civil proceedings would risk incriminating themselves or give the prosecution advance notice of their defences. This reason is commonly advanced by parties wishing to seek a stay. Mr Justice Millett dealt with that concern by accepting undertakings from the liquidators not to disclose the affidavits to third parties. The argument that the liquidators could be subpoenaed by the prosecutor, thereby undermining that undertaking, was rejected, and that was on the basis that the liquidators would have a reasonable excuse for refusing to comply with any notice to produce documents. The fact that having to produce a defence in civil proceedings might give advance notice to the prosecutor is not an argument that carries much weight when seeking a stay. That is because the right to remain silent in criminal proceedings does not translate into civil proceedings. In VNC, the court considered the right to silence in the context of an application for summary judgment. Lord Justice Waller gave three reasons why the right was no answer to the summary judgment application. Firstly, in a civil trial, there is no immunity against adverse comment or adverse inference from a failure to provide answers before the trial, i.e. in a defence or witness statement, or give evidence at trial. Secondly, a defence is now expected to be set out in criminal proceedings at an early stage. And finally, a positive defence is more likely to exculpate rather than incriminate. Those reasons apply equally to an application to stay civil proceedings on this basis. As Mrs Justice Gloucester observed in Bankas, Snorras and Antonov, the mere fact that a defendant may lose some tactical advantage in the criminal proceedings by having to disclose his defence early in the civil proceedings is not sufficient to constitute substantial or unfair prejudice or injustice. It's also not enough, as Mr Justice Briggs noted in FSA and Anderson, that both the civil and criminal proceedings arise from the same facts, or that defending the civil proceedings may require the defendant to take procedural steps, such as disclosing documents, which might not be required in the criminal proceedings. Even before the advent of the CPR, the courts had discounted the risk of inconsistent conclusions or decisions as, in itself, giving rise to prejudice justifying a stay of civil proceedings. The Court of Appeal noted in the Fired case in 1992 that such risk is always present and is unavoidable. Generally, it appears that the courts prefer to use case management tools to minimise or eradicate the risk of prejudice rather than ordering a stay. That was the approach taken in Zambia and in Banca Snorris. In Zambia, it was ordered that the trial would be in private and that no use of any pleadings, documents, witness statements or oral evidence could be made outside of the proceedings. Similarly, in Bankers Snorris, limitations were placed on the use or deployment of the defendant's defence, disclosure and witness statements. The aim in both cases was stated to be to ring-fence the civil proceedings. But there are cases where, far from wanting to ring-fence the civil proceedings, a party actively wants to reduce in those civil proceedings evidence given in the criminal proceedings. This is particularly common in landlord and tenant cases, for example, where allegations of antisocial behaviour or domestic violence are being relied upon. 
and in director's disqualification claims, where the allegations of unfitness centre on failure to comply with the immigration legislation. This is usually achieved by relying on Section 9 Criminal Justice Act 1967 statements, commonly referred to as Section 9 statements, in the civil proceedings. The statements might simply be included in the trial bundle, or they might be exhibited to a witness statement. To comply with Section 9, a statement must purport to be signed by the person who made it, contain a declaration by that person that it is true to the best of their knowledge and belief, and that the statement was made, knowing that if it were tendered in evidence, they would be liable to prosecution if they willfully stated anything false within it, be served before the hearing at which the statement is tendered in evidence, and finally, not be objected to by any of the other parties. This is such accepted practice that we've been unable to find any case where the basis for admitting such statements is actually discussed. It appears that Section 9 statements are admissible either as hearsay statements or simply as documents in an agreed trial bundle as evidence of their contents. The final procedural point to discuss before we briefly look at how POCA restraint orders impact on civil proceedings is the newish Part 81N, which deals with contempt proceedings. Civil contempt is, of course, not in itself a crime, but since it is punishable by committal to prison, a fine or confiscation of assets, we figured that it was within the scope of this podcast. The new Part 81 has come about as a consequence of high-profile criticism of the old rules, for example by Mr Justice Warby in the Attorney General and Yaxley Lennon in 2019, and a consequent consultation by the Civil Procedure Rules Committee in 2020. The old Part 81 was a lengthy confusion of substantive law and procedure, whereas the new Part 81 has been significantly simplified and consists of only 10 rules. Since the 1st of October of last year, parties to contempt proceedings have been referred to as claimant and defendant, rather than applicant and respondent. This change of terminology is intended to make the rules more accessible to unrepresented parties. Unless the alleged contempt relates to interference with the due administration of justice outside of existing proceedings, an application should be made by way of a Part 23 application. Permission to make the application is required in two circumstances. Firstly, where there has been interference with the due administration of justice except in relation to existing proceedings. Or secondly, where it is alleged that a person has knowingly made a false statement in a document verified by a statement of truth. The application for permission should be included within the contempt application. On the theme of the test for permission, the test was recently considered in the Court of Appeal in the case of Ocado Group and McKeeve. The court there waded through a significant amount of case law in its review to hold that the strong prima facie case test was that which would apply in the vast majority of cases, save for a few limited exceptions. It's worth noting that the Crown Court has the same powers and authority as the High Court in respect of contempt of court. Circumstances may arise where the Crown Court and Divisional Court have concurrent jurisdiction to punish contempt in relation to criminal proceedings, therefore. Also, the Attorney General has jurisdiction to bring a contempt application if the public interest requires their intervention to enforce an order. And that is one of the limited scenarios mentioned in McKeeve, uh, where the test for permission may be different. The so-called cornerstone of the new Part 81 is Rule 81.4, which, and I quote, is intended to stand as the guarantor of procedural fairness and incorporates the requirements of procedural fairness to the defendant. The rule sets out in clear and comprehensive terms what a contempt application must include. The requirements range from stating the nature of the contempt and details of the order allegedly breached, through to explaining that the defendant has the right to be legally represented in the contempt proceedings and that the defendant is not obliged to give evidence in their defence. 
One of the requirements is that the application must confirm whether the order alleged to have been breached or disobeyed included a penal notice. Unlike the old Part 81, the new Part 81 does not contain a provision that an order has to include a penal notice in a certain form in order for contempt proceedings to be brought. The authors of the White Book suggest that the previous wording should continue to be used. However, following the comments in McKay and All England Lawn Tennis Club uh, last year, it is suggested that the standard form of wording in Annex 3 to the old Practice Direction 81 should no longer be used. That is because it contained wording inconsistent with the right to silence and burden of proof, namely, the quotation being, if you consider the allegations are not true, you must tell the court why. A final point on the topic of penal notices, which is a particular bugbear of mine, is who is entitled to include them. Reference for this can be taken from the Chancery Guide at paragraph 16.34, where the guide makes clear that it is the parties who are in a position to include a penal notice, rather than requiring an order of the court to have a penal notice impressed upon an order. Rule 81.5 deals with service. Personal service is, as one would expect, the default requirement, but there is provision for service to be made on the legal representative for the defendant in the underlying proceedings, provided that the legal representative does not object to service in writing within seven days of receipt. Rule 81.6 introduces a requirement for a judge to consider whether contempt proceedings should be proceeded with of its own initiative, in much the same way that a judge should consider whether an application should be marked as totally without merit. Interestingly, Rule 81.8 expressly states that advocates should robe for contempt proceedings. The Rule Committee's view was that including this requirement in the rules itself emphasises the gravity of contempt proceedings. Moving on to our final topic for today, this is one of substantive law and is concerned with the interrelation of criminal and insolvency proceedings. Most of you will be familiar with the Proceeds of Crime Act 2002, and many of you will likely have encountered restraint orders made under that act. POCA restraint orders are, in essence, the criminal equivalent of a freezing injunction. Prosecutors may apply for a restraint order at any time following the commencement of a criminal investigation. The purpose of a restraint order is to freeze property anywhere in the world so as to preserve that property to make sure that it is available to settle any confiscation order which may be made in the future. As with a freezing injunction, a value is placed on a restraint order commensurate with the likely quantum of the future confiscation order. Restraint orders do not automatically come to an end when a confiscation order is made, but they remain in force until the confiscation order is satisfied and or the restraint order is discharged. So if we take a look firstly at bankruptcy. If a restraint order is made before the bankruptcy order, then property which is subject to the restraint order is excluded from the person's estate, and that's provided for in section 417 of the Proceeds of Crime Act. Consequently, that property will not vest in the trustee in bankruptcy. It's only once the restraint order is discharged that the excluded property will vest. The effect of section 306A2 of the Insolvency Act 1986 is that all such property automatically and seamlessly vests in the trustee as if it had formed part of the estate in the first place. Conversely, if a person has already been made bankrupt at a time when the criminal court is being asked to make the restraint order, then any restraint order cannot cover property which is comprised in the bankrupt's estate. It also cannot cover any property which might be the subject of a notice by a trustee, for example, after acquired property. Finally, if a bankrupt has directly or indirectly made a tainted gift, 
that's a term used in the Proceeds of Crime Act, and it's it's a complicated regime. But in short, a tainted gift is a transfer made after a criminal offence was committed. So if the bankrupt has made a tainted gift and any property um, of the recipient is subject to a restraint order, then no order imputing that gift as an antecedent transaction, a transaction under value, a preference, for example, can be made under the Insolvency Act 1986. Turning then to the corporate context, if a company is wound up by the court or it enters into voluntary liquidation, then a liquidator cannot exercise their functions in respect of any property which was subject to a restraint order at the time of the passing of the relevant resolution or making of the winding up order. If a company is already in liquidation, then the criminal court is free to make a restraint order. However, the court cannot exercise that power in respect of property which is held by the company and in relation to which the functions of the liquidator are exercisable in a way which either inhibits the liquidator from exercising their functions for the purpose of distributing property to the company's creditors, or which prevents the payment of expenses incurred in the winding up in respect of the property. As with bankruptcy, if a company in liquidation has made a tainted gift, no order can be made under the antecedent recovery provisions of the Insolvency Act, which Jessica has just mentioned, if any property of the recipient of the tainted gift is subject to a restraint order. As I mentioned at the start of this podcast, POCR issues have arisen in two recent cases of mine. In the first, I was advising a creditor of a debtor where an IVA was being proposed. The fly in the ointment was that although the debtor had been previously successful in discharging a restraint order, that decision had been appealed to the Court of Appeal. There was also the risk of a second application for a restraint order being made. There was therefore a significant risk that the restraint order would be reinstated by the Court of Appeal or that a new order would be made. The approach we took was to propose certain modifications to the IVA which would ensure automatic termination of the IVA if a restraint order was made. My other case concerns an application for an order for possession and sale by a trustee in bankruptcy. The relevant property was caught by a restraint order made prior to the bankruptcy order. Nevertheless, the first trustee purported to disclaim the property at a time when it was still caught by the restraint order. And thus, following a couple of recent authorities, the disclaimer has no effect because you cannot disclaim what you do not have. So those are just two examples of the kind of issues that might arise when you're facing the interrelation of insolvency and criminal law, particularly POCA restraint orders. That then was our whistle-stop tour of the possible issues which arise where criminal proceedings intrude on civil proceedings. I, for my part, can't help but think that we are likely to see more insolvency cases where POCA orders have an impact as a consequence of the widely reported fraudulent use of COVID-19 financial support. Quite possibly, James. Let's watch this space. Thank you all very much for listening. Please rate and review us if you get a chance. And goodbye for now.